Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're once again diving, or rather driving, into recent UBS Q-series research, which seeks to connect the dots across asset classes, geographies and sectors. In particular, we're exploring and hearing more from the authors of and contributors to UBS's Evidence Lab Teardown of an Electric Car. In this latest iteration, the vehicle in the frame is the latest mass-market EV from China's number one car maker, the BYD Seal. Let's start with Patrick Hummel, analyst in UBS Investment Bank and a familiar voice on the evolution of EVs on this programme since the very first UBS teardown of the Chevy Bolt right back in 2017. Patrick, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you with us. And before we dive into the details of the most recent sort of Q-series and the EV teardown and all the rest of it, just give us a bit of historical context because we've been talking about these reports for, well, sort of over half a decade now. And it's always so interesting. Just remind us why this is of perennial importance to you and your colleagues to take these, these deeper dives into this space. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Tom. Look, we do these EV teardowns because we want to get a deeper understanding of um, innovation, of changes in supply chains, and of course, about the the competitiveness of the players in question. And now the big debate is, of course, uh, the emergence of Chinese EV makers in the European market. And um, we wanted to understand how the market leader UID goes about this uh, in terms of uh, what's different in their supply chains, what do they have a technological edge, how could they do in a globalization strategy, especially when it comes to dealing with trade barriers, local assembly, etc. So this teardown gave us yeah, strong and unique insights into these questions, and that's why we did it. Well, yeah, and let's pile into the uh, the issue at hand then. It's super interesting. And what I always find particularly compelling, and it's this year is no different, or this latest uh, report is no different, is the idea of benchmarking things. So we can look at Tesla's performance, uh, compare that with all the legacy OEMs, more of a, of a European picture often. Um, and then we can pitch the number one Chinese EV maker straight in there. How quickly was it apparent as you got stuck into the detail, Patrick, that... You know, even with those trade barriers you've already mentioned in mind, there, there is a, a huge opportunity here for, for BYD and for the other Chinese EV uh, OEMs. Well, Tom, in, in the end, it's, um, I think, uh, the combination of um, the technology this company has and the cost structure, of course. In the end, it's a package of uh, being on the technological forefront with constant innovation, with uh, unique access to the batteries. That is uh, a key asset these days. If you own internally what is the current latest and greatest in terms of affordable battery technology for mass market EVs, whereas everybody else, maybe except for Tesla in the US, has to source externally, that is a huge asset. But it's not only that. It's the integration of the battery into the vehicle's body and white. It's the vertical integration in electronics manufacturing that gives you wider type of choice, how you want to integrate in the vehicle, what you can optimize further. It's a very different setup if you are, let's say, a legacy car company without those competencies in-house and you have to work with, you know, two handful of different suppliers on different modules in the car. So that was a moment when you say, okay, 
this is very different. This has the potential to be significantly better and also cheaper than what the legacy car makers are able to offer, combined with, I think, a, a, a very strong innovation culture in the firm. Uh, it's not the legacy thinking of, you know, seven-year product cycles. It's constant innovation. So if you look at the vehicle we tore down, BYD Seal, compared to the models that BYD launched over the past couple of years, every iteration is a step forward. It's not like having one platform and then you put all kinds of variants on the same structure. It's a constant innovation culture. And this is what makes um, the company so interesting. And also, of course, the scale they have by now in the Chinese market, they're even ahead of Tesla. They are nowadays the number two battery electric vehicle producer in the world already. So the scale they bring in combination with the vertical integration is a potential disruptor. Well, yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about the cost implications of that vertical integration potential and the scale you've you've just mentioned in a second, Patrick. But I wanted to take a step back and just talk about the teardown specifically, because the actual mechanics, to use a better uh, phrase, are are, are really interesting. Just remind us what exactly goes into this, because there's colleagues from UBS, uh, you partner with other uh, leading automotive benchmarking concerns. Tell us a bit about the process, because I find that really interesting. Yeah, I mean, in 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 the end, we're we're all bankers, and I'm not sure uh, if we're good with screw drivers and things like that. So, um, we have partnered with a consultancy called A2 Mac One. They've been an excellent teardown partner, actually performing the the physical work, and we've chosen them because they have already turned down 200 electric vehicle models so far. So, pretty much every EV that's on the road out there, they already. Uh, took a deep dive look under the hood. And that, of course, enables um, a unique set of benchmarking data so we can see who's doing what better, cheaper, more expensive, etc. And the process is, you know, the vehicle goes to the lab, it gets torn down, ripped into pieces, basically. Then there is a couple of months of technical analysis that our teardown partner performed in collaboration with us. And after all, we get their findings on the technical front, on the cost front, and uh, we combine it with our expertise and uh, draw the financial conclusions as a UBS global research team. As you mentioned, I mean, it's not just automotive. It affects many sectors like tech hardware, chemicals, when it comes to batteries, the raw materials, cap goods in, in terms of how the vehicle is being produced. There is a big number of sectors affected by such disruption that we could see in the global EV market. And so we collaborated within UBS Global Research across sectors to analyze as deeply as possible and come up with uh, actionable conclusions. I find it really interesting, the sort of cost leadership potential here in particular. You've already mentioned vertical integration and scale. But if we actually look at the numbers in the cold light of day, Patrick, they're pretty arresting. And there's a suggestion that, you know, there could be estimations looking at the figures, similar profits on mass market ICE cars. I mean, that is a pretty extraordinary point. I mean, is it too much to say, you know, this this could be a, a breakthrough in terms of the broader EV transition? I think that's a fair statement overall, Tom. Of course, the prices of Chinese EVs in Europe are not the same as in China. And I'm sure we'll dive deeper into that discussion also when it comes to trade barriers and EU investigations of uh, whether there is dumping or not. But the, the point here is, that for the time being in the Western world car market, uh, there is no proper choice of electric vehicles below, let's say, 40,000 euros. Basically, most of the offering is above, and anything that's below 
doesn't really make it as a first car in a family household. It's either super small or has a very, very low range. So this is the opportunity where well-engineered, good quality Chinese EV products could fill a void. And um, of course, you know, needless to say, that's a part of the market where the big volumes are happening. Everything about 40,000 euros is kind of premium segment, but the big volumes are at or below 40,000 euros. And this is where the Chinese potentially have a very, very uh, compelling offering. As I said, the prices in Europe are meaningfully higher because for everything that gets imported from China into Europe, there is a 10% import tariff by the EU. And depending on how these uh, anti-dumping proceedings go, that might even go up. We will see. There's additional transportation costs involved. There is a dealer margin involved. So in the end, these vehicles are getting, you know, in the affordable segment, almost $10,000 or the equivalent of it higher than, than the price in China. But nonetheless, it's still meaningfully cheaper than what the legacy car makers are offering in that segment. So in the end, what we say is a company like BYD, which is undoubtedly also a leader in the Chinese context, uh, but a company like BYD could have a 25% sustainable cost advantage over the legacy OEMs. Yeah, I mean, and that's a pretty striking number. And I guess there are several things which are interesting. I mean, I'd well, I'd be interested to get your sense, Patrick, of whether it's possible for European OEMs to try and be more competitive, to replicate that success. It will certainly be very difficult, if not impossible, one imagines. Um, but tell me about the, the fact that there isn't a similarly disruptive player within the European market. I mean, that must also be a key factor in indicating that the direction of travel for Europe is, well, it's got to be the, the, the biggest potential area of growth for Chinese OEMs like BYD. Europe is certainly one of the most attractive uh, addressable markets for the Chinese uh, EV makers. That's because North America is kind of ring-fenced against Chinese competition um, with the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, And of course, Europe as a region is moving relatively quickly towards uh, electrification. And that makes Europe as a target market so attractive for the Chinese. And Tom, as far as the um, competitiveness of the European industry is concerned, well, BYD has several key advantages, we think, over the incumbent OEMs. The biggest one is actually the battery itself. Um, They have a world-class so-called LFP battery optimized in form factor and design in the way it's integrated into the vehicle's body. And that alone represents more than 10%, if not 15% cost advantage over the average legacy car makers. This specific technology, LFP, has been used for decades in in China, but it was seen as an outdated uh, low energy density technology. And, and, uh, you know, the Western OEMs thought nickel batteries are the name of the game. So they went into a different direction than BYD and for example, also CATL, uh, which is the biggest EV battery maker in the world, they optimized the LFP chemistry and the the, the form factor, so to say, in a way that with hindsight, it was the wrong choice for the legacy car makers to say, 
we go all in for nickel batteries. But now this LFP technology is in the hands of a few Chinese companies. And it's not that easy for the legacy car makers to make that shift towards that LFP chemistry. Um, and this represents really a cost difference of about $2,000 per car. And if you then integrate it nicely into the vehicle's body, uh, you can add another $1,000 of savings. So it's up to $3,000 cheaper to use that technology. And we don't really see the, the legacy car makers replicating that. Um, and the other thing is, of course, um, the electronics they do made in China. And even in case of a local assembly of the car in Europe, which frankly, I think will happen, uh, BYD might be the first Chinese OEM to announce an assembly plant in Europe, they would probably still take advantage of their Chinese supply chains in the key areas so that there, there is a sustained cost advantage from, from that side. And last but not least, it's also about the innovation culture. I mentioned the differences. And, uh, you know, in the end, the whole industry is learning from Tesla. And so do the Chinese. Tesla, if you look at a Model Y built today, it's fundamentally different to the Model Y uh, when it was introduced into the market four years ago, five years ago. It still looks the same from the outside, but it is fundamentally different under the hood. Giga casting, structural batteries, these kind of things. That's just, you know, uh, an open heart surgery basically during the, the product life cycle that Tesla has brought as an innovation to the industry and the Chinese have adopted this. This is not the mindset of the legacy car makers uh, to make such big changes during a product life cycle. But, you know, at times of, of rapid innovation, that is what you need to do actually to stay competitive or narrow the gap. And frankly, um, right now it doesn't feel like... Um, you know, the, the, the incumbent OEMs are getting much faster uh, in that sense. And I think what we also need to appreciate, you know, if, if, if you as a Chinese EV leader control the battery and the supply chain, if you're good at software, which is not necessarily BYD's stronghold, there are other Chinese that are even better on that front. We all talk about the software-defined vehicle. That's the future. Um, making that shift for the incumbent OEMs is just meaningfully more challenged because they don't have that software know-how. If you look at uh, you know the great software clusters out there, they're a little bit outside the traditional automotive world. If I look at you know the whole package of, uh, of of drivers and differentiators, it doesn't feel like the Western legacy OEMs, at least in the mass market, are getting you know up to an innovation speed that enables them to close that gap. Yeah, I mean, the idea of the pace of development and of innovation is really extraordinary. And you describe, I thought that's clever, that idea of Tesla kind of performing open heart surgery on the move almost. One other thing that I find even more astonishing, though, in terms of the speed of development is the, the move of China from being a net importer of cars to the world's largest exporter within, I mean... A handful of years. It's it's absolutely astonishing yep. to me, Patrick. In, in a sense, I think it's almost an unprecedented turnaround on the scales that we're we're talking. Yep. J- just tell me a little bit about the the big picture. If we look at China's macro economic outlook, what could that mean in terms of the further intensification of efforts to globalize this sector, yep. or, or more broadly? The Chinese 
EV makers, um, they have been pretty busy meeting the local demand because the EV share in the Chinese market has consistently gone up. And, you know, it's no longer a phenomenon at the at the edges of the market, like small commuter cars or high-end luxury, whatever. Now it's really the core of the Chinese mass market that is electrifying. And that is because it's just a cheaper car to buy nowadays. It's not just better on a total cost of ownership perspective. It's the cheaper car. Uh, and usually it's the better one because it has the latest generation connectivity, driver assistance functions, and that is what the Chinese consumers value a lot. Now you can leverage that, bring bring that technology to um, to international markets. And to your point, you know the the macro situation in China is not easy. The years of um, you know structural auto market growth in China are probably over. We will still see EVs growing, but not the market as a whole. And the strong Chinese players are growing their exports. By the way, not only for electric cars, because in other Asian markets or in in, in um, other emerging markets, there is also a very healthy demand for. Chinese um, um, cars with combustion engines or, or hybrid cars. So it's it's not only EV exports that drive that growth. But what you can see there is, you know, in markets where trade barriers are low, uh, where maybe there are also, you know, friendly political ties with China, the consumers are really keen to buy these products. And um, of course, there are some markets that are more difficult to address for Chinese companies, and that's for geopolitical reasons. But Europe... Um, you know, if if you would have a map with countries that are kind of red-ish because uh, it's it's protected against Chinese competition, and you've got a lot of countries uh, that are that are green, and we we would say overall about um, two thirds of the global car market uh, are flashing green. Um, Europe might be a bit in the yellow zone uh, with some trade barriers that might increase. But in the end, we think there are ways around it. And local assembly is the name of the game. Uh, if you go into the target markets with a local assembly plant, you also change the political debate a lot. Uh, you can avoid import tariffs. You create jobs. You, you make local investments. And um, of course, not everybody can do this. Not every OEM will have the critical mass to do this because you need a few hundred thousand units a year in order to justify the investment. But the largest ones, let's say a handful of Chinese players, will get there. Patrick Hummel. Next up, let's hear from François-Xavier Bouvigny, analyst in UBS and head of the Europe semis sector at the bank. FX will pick up on some of the themes that Patrick's mentioned there in a moment. But to start with, I know you've been writing and lots of your research is looking at, you know, well, is it the end of the road for incumbent auto semis? Let's start with that big question. Are, Are we at or approaching the end of that particular road, do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, clearly a, a very important question. And I think that's why this project was exciting for us, because we know China has been investing uh, significantly in semiconductors. I mean, let's say for the past 10 to 15 years. And it's something that is very recurring and coming back to us in terms of a question how China is evolving and how it can impact the sector. And obviously, we know now um, as a fact that uh, China is is making a lot of progress with this BYD seal. We see tangible evidence of the market share increasing. And as Patrick uh, told you, they expect their market share going from 17% globally to 33% by 2030. So the question is, what does it mean for semiconductors? Because it could have very significant impact, especially for a sector that is fundamentally loved in a way. And when I say fundamentally loved, it's because you have 
very strong growth drivers. You know, you have semiconductors everywhere, uh, you know, around us and growing if last, in the last 20 years by 8% per year on the unit terms, you know, in terms of semiconductors. Now, as BYD is becoming successful and with the current geopolitical tensions, the question is, if BYD is successful, what does what does it mean for the sector? And looking at what is under the hood for the BYD, it kind of give you give us a, a hint, right? And you can try quantif- quantifying the the impact. So what we found is basically in this BYD two key conclusions. The first one is uh, the if you look at the different semiconductor components within a car, you have the powertrain, ADAT, and infotainment. That's where you have a lot of semiconductors in your car. And within powertrain specifically, we found that 36%, 36% of the volumes of the components of semiconductors are done by Chinese players. Interestingly, the ADAS and infotainment, it was less than 3%. So the conclusion here, as you can see, is we know China has been investing, but now we see a clear traction in the powertrain. And in the powertrain, um, you know, 70% of the value is done by power semiconductors. It's a type of semiconductors that are converting electricity and so forth. So we can conclude based on this teardown that they are, China is definitely now a reality in terms of semiconductors because they are in the, one of the most biggest volume uh, car. And also, more importantly, first in the powertrain. When ADAS and infotainment is a question of time, presumably, but at least it's not visible at this stage. And FX, can you just run us through these three possible scenarios that you outline in the report in terms of what all of this means for the global semi-sector? What is clear is that it's very difficult to come with a base or very or only one view because the, these things are moving very quickly and you have geopolitics on top and uh, you have conflict of interest and it creates um, a lot of different potential scenarios. And that's why it was very important for us to tell you Okay, we don't know what's going to happen, but we we have a view on what might happen in terms of different output. And in each output, you can quantify the impact. And these three scenarios, unfortunately, are all negative for the incumbents, I should say, but they are very different in terms of materiality. So let, let's take, for example, the scenario one. Based on this teardown and based as well on our industry discussions, we can now assume that the Chinese local market, domestic China, is going to probably be replaced by Chinese semis. In other words, all the incumbents doing business in China, they will lose uh, the, uh, their, their market share there. And in the scenario one, it's only the domestic China that the uh, Western world will lose. And when we try to quantify the impact, we just basically try to dig a bit more exactly on what the percentage of their revenues, and when I say there, the incumbents is coming from China or domestic China, and it's between 15 and 20% of the revenues. So it means that in over in an horizon of five to 10 years, you will lose 15% of your revenues, 
And if we look at our market forecast, we have 12% growth in the auto semi-segment in terms of, of, of revenues. And if you have 12 and that you lose 10% uh, or 15% of revenues over time, it's a 1% to 2% trade-off in terms of growth rate. So it means that the incumbents, they will grow 10% uh, instead of 12, which is a risk that we found, uh, you know, quite manageable, um, if you see what I mean, especially at current valuation. Um, but then you're going to tell me why uh, they wouldn't, uh, you know, make more progress, not only in China, but in other parts of the region. In the scenario one, it would assume that either BYD and the other Chinese are not successful to sell in Europe, or, for example, there is a ban that could be a potential scenario of Europe and the US that also uh, could be one. Um, so that's the soft one, and, and that, but that's still negative. The second one, which is more our base case, and uh, when we say base case, it basically the probability is higher uh, in our view, uh, is that China is going to go away, um, but uh, BYD will also increase, and when I say BYD, it's also also other Chinese, will increase their market share significantly in Europe, like Patrick told you, uh, from 3 to 20% in Europe. Um, and we believe that uh, the Chinese will use Chinese semis in their car, but they also use a mix with incumbent semis within their car. And there are two reasons why we believe they're going to do that. One is geopolitics. I mean, if you want to gain a lot of market share, I think there will be very similar to Tesla in, in a way, 50% of the supply is coming locally for the Tesla that is sold in uh, in China, when when they sell a, a model in in the US, it's like 80% done in house and and locally, so you can really see a difference because it can can give you, you know, the the um, legitimate reason to to to, to do business uh, for geopolitical reasons, and the second one is a is a performance. Like I said, you still have a trade off. So if you want to compete in Europe against, you know, Tesla, Mercedes, and so forth, you will probably need to step up in terms of performance. And that's also why you would go with the leaders um, with more experience in the area. So in this scenario, instead of having 1% to 2% uh, trade-off in terms of growth rate, you end up with 3 to 4 which instead of growing 12%, you grow 8 something like that, or high single digit, if you prefer which is still manageable in the current valuation in our view, and that's why we still have some, some buy rating in this view. But then you have the third scenario, and the third scenario is problematic. It would not only imply that they lose China, um, but they also would lose Europe mostly, and, and on top, the incumbents, OEMs, i.e. leaders like Volkswagen, Mercedes, Tesla, would start using Chinese semis in their car to reduce the cost. And in this scenario, it's negative not only for the market share, but more importantly, for the pricing, because we know that Chinese is, uh, is, is uh, still uh, selling at a discount compared to market rate to gain some traction and market share. And it would create price pressure across the board. So instead of growing 8%, you would have effectively declining earnings despite very strong fundamentals in this industry. 
So that's the kind of the three scenarios we, we show. And depending on where we go in the future, we can move the probability for one scenario or the other. François-Xavier Bouvigny. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle Radio. You can listen again and explore more at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club and subscribe to the magazine too. You can also follow this programme wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more and find out how UBS can help you at UBS.com. That's where you can also explore the Q-Series reports in more detail. Just head there and search BYD and you'll find the EV teardown landing page and plenty of other resources. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.